Hebrews 9:27 It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Today I want to talk to you about death. Your death and judgment. Welcome to church this morning. So good to see you. I have missed you. I was gone last week and for some reason it just feels like I've been gone for like a month. Um I guess it's been two weeks since we've seen each other, since we mostly meet on Sundays. For sermon preparation this past week, I took a few field trips. One of them was to a graveyard in the old Dutch church in the village of Sleepy Hollow, New York, where Washington Irving set his famous, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And if you've ever been there, you know it's a beautiful and a quaint place Several Revolutionary War veterans are buried there, and I love to walk a place like that and read the gravestones and see what's written fun there. Most of them are in English, but some of them are in Dutch, the original inhabitants of that land. And then another field trip was in New York City at the famous Trinity Church, Wall Street, where I saw the grave of Alexander Hamilton. And on the tomb is inscribed something about how his fame will out, long outlast the stone on which this is written. This must have been a prophetic word about a Broadway musical, <laughs> which would cause him to live in eternity. And before going to New York, I went to New Orleans for my uncle Robert's memorial service. He passed away at the age 84 and he lived a good and long life in the Lord. And his brothers got up and told stories about him and his kids and his grandkids talked about how much he loved them and how he wasn't the most verbally expressive person when it came to love, but how he definitely loved them in his actions. And my cousin Mark, who's probably a good 14 years older than me, got up and told a story about how when he was 19, he had borrowed his dad's Suburban, driving around with Anthony, a good family friend that we all know, and somehow they got on a shell road. Now, you guys in, in, in Georgia have gravel roads, but in New Orleans, we have shell roads. They'll take these clams, you guys know about this, and they pave the roads with shells. And they decided, why not go 90 miles an hour on a shell road in a suburban? <laughs> Which, of course, was not the wisest idea that one makes at the age of 19. And of course, after a while, that suburban was hugging a really nice oak tree. Don't worry, the oak tree is fine. <laughs> Scared to death, Mark calls his dad. A loving but stern man. He had every right to be afraid. I would be afraid for sure, even with my dad. Sorry. And all my Uncle Robert wanted to know, are you okay, son? Are you okay? That was it. 
There was a lot said at this funeral, and of course, a lot of things that were not said. And there is something about a memorial service that helps you to look inside of yourself and examine your life like nothing else. When my kids gather to bury me, what will they say? What will yours say? Is it appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment? Hear these words from Pastor Bono, the lead singer of the rock band U2. Last time we met was a low-lit room. We were as close together as bride and groom. We ate the food, we drank the wine, everybody having a good time. Except you. You were talking about the end of the world. It's just a few days from Thanksgiving. And we're going to have a great time, right, with our dear friends and family. We're going to be stuffing our faces with our favorite foods and our favorite drinks. And then after that, the whole world's going to be in full-blown-out Christmas mode, right? The halls will be decked. And everywhere we go, the happiest holiday music is going to be playing, right, in every place you shop. Everybody having a good time, except you, Jesus, <laughs> You're talking about the end of the world. What is wrong with Jesus and what is wrong with his church? Don't they know that judgment can be a real downer, especially this time of year? Evidently, the church has a long history about talking, uh, a long history of talking about judgment in inappropriate times and places. The great Episcopal preacher. Fleming Rutledge was recounting her own wedding and how the matrimonial liturgy in the older version of the Book of Common Prayer, so the Book of Common Prayer, 1928, and in it the priest would say this to the couple, I require and charge you both as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment why ye may not be lawful joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. It's supposed to be the happiest day of your life, right? And here goes the church bringing up the dreadful day of judgment. And here we are gathering, gearing up for Thanksgiving, and the prophet Zephaniah is standing up here reminding us that the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath and a day of distress and anguish. And so why is the church reading this now? Is Jesus some kind of killjoy? Well, actually, no. Actually, his agenda for humanity is unspeakable joy. In fact, the gospel accounts with glad tidings of great joy that were announced to shepherds by the angels. And then at your very end, Jesus wants to be able to say this to you. The very words we read in Matthew this morning. Well done, 
good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And so the question for us this morning is how? How do we enter that joy? Not the temporary nostalgia of the holidays. Not the temporal happiness that comes from a successful career in a place like Atlanta. Not even the meaningful joy and happiness that comes from a life well spent with your family. But the boundless, eternal joy that God has prepared for those he loves And friends, this is the counterintuitive message of the gospel this morning. That contemplating the day of judgment actually leads to joy. Contemplating the day of judgment and adjusting our lives accordingly actually leads to joy. I know, I'm with you, some of us would rather not think of death and judgment. But I think avoiding it is like avoiding thinking about your retirement. Anybody here want to retire one day? I know I would like to. I mean, look, I love this job, all right? I love you guys at doing this, but it would be nice to retire one day, right? Would you like to have a good retirement? How do you want to live in retirement? What do you want to do? Do you want to be able to travel? Well, one thing is certain Not planning for it is not going to help you get there, right? Like not thinking about it is not going to be super helpful. I'm hoping to retire one day, and I'm sure most of you are. In reality, at least those of us who are a little bit younger and not yet retired, we cannot be certain that that day will come. In fact, it is likely that some of us will die before we reach the age of retirement. But the one thing that is certain is that each one of us will one day die and face judgment. As we read in Hebrews 9, 27. Is it appointed for man once? It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now I know probably a lot of you are like me and in denial, and we'd rather go through life not thinking about how it's going to end. But if we have a plan for retirement and are right now adjusting our lives to ensure a future for ourselves as we're older, then how much more should we be planning for our death and day of judgment? Adjusting our lives according to those certain realities. Okay, so hopefully I've cleared the ground this morning on why thinking about judgment today is actually a good thing. So with that in mind, I want us now to go into the parable that Jesus tells us this morning in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And he's using parables to explain what judgment will be like in the kingdom of God. Verse 14, for it is as if a man, a very wealthy man, by the way, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his 
ability. So a few notes here. Our word talent, which we think of as like an ability, something God gave you to do, actually comes from this story. And originally, this word talent didn't mean ability. It was just a a measure of money. It was like a bag of gold, literally. And so it's been the church reflecting on this story, which has developed the idea of talents and God-given abilities. So just kind of a little reverse etymology there on what this thing means. It was a lot of money. According to New Testament commentator R.T. France, he estimates that it would have been worth about um, a half of lifetime's worth of wages for a laborer. So you think about you're a working class laborer and you work your whole life, half of that is what one talent would have been worth. And so to the most business savvy slave, he entrusted five whole talents. And to the second slave, he gave two. And to the last slave, he gave one. And why did he give them this money? What was he expecting? Well, he wanted a return, right? (laughs) They worked for him, and he expected them to make his money grow. And so when the master returns, he is happy to hear that the first slave was able to double his money. And so he does what any one of us would do if a stockbroker or investor were to double our money. (laughs) 100% return is really good. (laughs) You're going to give them more if they give you 100% return, right? And so he says, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. I love what you did with that thing I gave you. Here's more of it. Notice the reward for the slave isn't freedom. It's more responsibility. Like you did a good job and I'm going to give you more work to do in a sense. Interesting, right? Well, like we're disciples. Like that actually never stops, right? Like he's actually always going to be our master, right? We're always slaves doing our best by God's grace to be trustworthy. Well, it goes, to sec- it goes similar with the second slave. He was given two bags of gold and that slave doubled them. And again, he says, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then of course we have the catch, which is the third slave. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward saying, hey, master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I do not scatter? Then you are to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what is my own with interest. So take from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For all those who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here are three things that are striking to me as I read this parable. One, in the parable, like the two other parables in Matthew 25, there are people who consider themselves to be on the team, who consider themselves disciples of Jesus, who fully expect to be heirs of God's kingdom. And yet, they find themselves on the outside. Two, you wicked and lazy slave. The servant is actually judged for his unwillingness to take appropriate risk with what God has entrusted him. Each disciple of Christ has been entrusted with gifts and opportunities of service to the Lord. Each disciple should live and work in such a boldly enterprising way that the returning master will say, well done, you good and trustworthy slave. And the master has no patience for servants who are risk adverse and lazy when it comes to the gifts that they have been given. Three, some of us imagine that the scrutiny should be mostly on those who are managing large sums of money. Especially in our culture, right? We really want to keep the 1% accountable. Those of us who are only entrusted with a little probably should not be bothered. And yet, in this story, those who are entrusted with just a little are giving the same level, high level of scrutiny we would expect for the biggest managers of wealth. And so I want us to turn inward for a moment and I have some questions for introspection. I invite you to hold these questions before the Lord. What has the master entrusted to you? On the day of judgment, what is the return that Jesus will be looking for when he calls your name? Now, I don't believe this parable is specifically focused on how we manage our, materially, our material wealth, but certainly it can be applied to how we spend our money. And since the story uses imagery of large bags of gold, let's go there for a moment. How are you spending the money that God has entrusted to you? I'm so encouraged to say that there are people in this room that have been entrusted with money and are using that money to make significant investments in the kingdom of God. 
And some people in this room have been entrusted with only a little bit of money, and yet they are still making sacrificial investments in the kingdom of God that are significant to our Lord. And I am not here to judge anyone. And I actually don't think I would be very good at it in the first place. But I wonder if there is an invitation for you this morning to imagine that one day you will stand before God and give an account for how you manage the wealth that he has entrusted to you. Next question. How are you treating the family that God has entrusted to you? Think about your parents, your siblings, people you're going to see at Thanksgiving. Are you loving well and caring for the spouse God gave you? Are you working together to fulfill the calling that God has placed on your lives? Are you a source of encouragement and help for your spouse as they pursue their calling? What about your kids? On the day of judgment, looking back, would you have any regrets regarding to how you relate to your children? One more question for introspection. You have been entrusted with the single greatest asset of all time, the gospel. Have you been diligent in your gospel work? Have you taken appropriate risk with the message of truth that has been entrusted to you? And friends, as important as financial stewardship is and as important as caring for our families is, and I do believe we'll give an account for both of these, it seems actually most likely that this passage is about, to use the language of one commentator, the specific privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven and responsibilities they entail. How are you using your kingdom privileges in all the responsibilities that come with them? One of my favorites, N.T. Wright, thinks this story is actually not so much about the last day of judgment, but about how God's people fail to fulfill their calling to be a light to the nations. And so in his mind, they were trusted with the law and the prophets and that God was looking for a return. And so Jesus is actually here in their day saying he was looking for a, a prophet but did not find it. And that's an okay reading. And I would say if this parable is about a people who are entrusted with the law and failed to produce an expected prophet, how much more so for a people like us who have been entrusted with the gospel and given the most precious gift of the Holy Spirit.
Friends, I want to be perfectly clear with you this morning that because I am a Christian, I do not fear judgment. In fact, the same passage in Hebrew, if we zoom out and read it, we will see uh, there is a much bigger picture going on here. Hebrews 9, 26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Friends, the good news, sin's been dealt with. When I stand before Christ, I won't fear judgment because I will be perfectly confident that on the cross, he took all the judgment that was rightly mine for himself. And this is the good news of the gospel. And I love Matthew 25, and we can make a lot of things out of it. And we're studying it three weeks in a row. Jetta, Jetta last week, this week, and then you get Jetta again, the closing. She's the bookends. Whatever we make of Matthew 25, we have to put it in the context of the good news, of the radical forgiveness. The same person staring at you in judgment is the one that stares at you from the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is the judge worthy to sit on the throne. So I want you to know, I am a big time sinner and I won't be trusting in my own works, but in God's great mercy on that day of judgment. And knowing that I'm saved by grace and not by works and knowing that the fruit of the gospel is meant what it's meant to be in my life, I can then contemplate judgment and do an inventory of my life. And we can ask ourselves, what does it look like to align my life with the ways of God's kingdom as God's grace enables me today? How can I be faithful with what God has entrusted me? How can I live in the spirit a life that produces a kingdom return for God's investment? On that day, I hope you and me will get to hear those beautiful words on the precious lips of our Savior. Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Amen.